Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the BitCast. First of all, I'd like to apologize for the accidental double upload of the WarioWare episode. I'm not really sure why that happened. I think the uploading process was giving me a little bit of attitude. I'm gonna look into that, see how I can fix that. Anyway, back to the point. A while ago, I did an episode based on my first impressions of Octopath Traveler from the free demo, and I said that I would do another episode after playing more of the game. I was thinking I would do an episode after completing the game, but it's taking me a lot longer than I thought it would. So, what I'm going to do instead is, since I'm at the halfway point now, I'm going to do kind of a halfway point impression, and then I'll just do another one after beating the game fully. I've done the first and second chapters for all eight characters, and there are four chapters for them, so yeah, that puts me at more or less the halfway point. I'm also going to dip into kind of where I think each story might go based on guesses and a few little details I've kind of accidentally discovered. So people who are listening to this who've already played the game can get a laugh at how way off base I'll be or maybe how accidentally correct I'll be. And since I haven't met seven of the eight characters during the previous episode, this will also kind of let me talk about my more up-to-date impressions of everybody, too. Needless to say, there's going to be a little bit of spoiler in this, or maybe even a lot. So, if you're still trying to go into the game blind, well, that's kind of what the other episode was for. So, this one's going to be a little more spoiler-heavy. Now, I wouldn't be this far into the game if I wasn't having fun with it, so it's safe to say that I don't regret buying it since playing the demo. A lot of what I loved in the demo is still here in the full game, and it's expanded tenfold. I remember going over how I liked the strategy element to the fights, and that gets even better. First of all, I didn't even realize that you can boost more than once, so you can actually let your weapons strike up to four times if you charge the boost enough. And the different party members do indeed add elements of strategy, such as what role they'll play, being the fighter, the support, the healer as well as what enemy weaknesses they're able to hit with their unique weapons or spells, and which passive abilities they have whipped. A little bit of a Fire Emblem thing going on there. You can also see the turn queue up at the top of the screen, and a few of your abilities can affect it, so it's good to keep that in mind. There's also when you break an enemy by reducing their shield to zero and stunning them for a turn, you gotta think about... When, during the turn, would you like them to be stunned, because that will keep them inactive longer, and maybe you don't always want to stun every enemy at once, because then they'll all recover at the same time, and they'll all get their turn right away. So what I kind of like to do is juggle which one is stunned and which one is still active, keeping in mind which turn I'm on. It's really, really thought-intensive. I've met all eight of the protagonists, as I said, and I enjoy each of them in different ways. There are a few inconsistencies in the storylines, though, or plot holes, or general things that make less sense the more you think about them. 
Each character has their own plot line that spreads out over four chapters, but that character is the only one who appears in the cutscenes or says anything important or things like that. The others can chime in during optional traveler banter scenes, but it's nothing weighty. Therion's story kind of suffers the most from this because his first chapter is pulling a heist on someone who might not even deserve it. And all my characters just decided to help him, even though they have better and more noble things to do than pulling a heist. Like, Tressa, your first chapter was stopping pirates from stealing from your town. Why are you helping this guy? Uh, I guess they scratch Therion's back, he'll scratch theirs, because he comes along and helps with whatever they're up to. I'll go over everyone, give my thoughts on them and their stories so far, my predictions, maybe. I'll do it in the order I first encountered everyone in Chapter 1. Starting off with Tressa, I still really dig what her story's all about. She's just kind of traveling the world, just kind of seeing what's out there, and just taking it all in. It's kind of like me, in a way. It's more meta than anything else. It's not like I'm actually traveling in real life or anything, but I kind of want to see what this world is about in the game. I want to see what all is out there. So Tressa's adventure kind of speaks to me in that way, and it's one of the most lighthearted of all the adventures. Everyone's got a lot of angst and stuff going on, but Tressa is kind of a refreshing bit of levity to all of it. Start with her, like I said, I played her prologue, so I already knew what her first stuff was, but her second chapter was a little heavier, it involves meeting a rival merchant, and at the end of the chapter he mentions that they're going to compete again at this big merchant festival at the end of Tressa's storyline. For some reason, that's going to be put off a bit. The connections between her chapters aren't really strong. She's just kind of randomly going wherever, which fits with everything I said, but it does make her story look a little more random, I would say. I'm not exactly sure where her story is going with all this. She's kind of called out for being young and naive a lot, and in some ways she is, but not really sure. I'm just kind of along for the ride, and I guess so is Tressa, so there's that. The second character I encountered was Ulbrich, and he's, you know, kind of your big tough knight guy. Patrick Seitz, I'm kind of used to him by now, I hear him in a lot of things, and he's playing a very Patrick Seitz voice for the character. But he makes it work. He really sounds... That may be antiquated is a good word. He's not... He's not like Hanit, who's speaking in thous and these. Uh, we'll get to her later. But Ulbrich is kind of... Kind of your brooding character. That Most of them are brooding in some way. But Ulbrich is probably kind of... I feel like he's one of the most typical of the storylines. But I don't really care because... His, his character writing and Patrick Seitz's performance just really sell it for me. He was a renowned soldier for his kingdom, but then his best friend, who was another renowned soldier, ended up killing their king during a war. Oops. Except not really, because he meant to kill the king. So Ulbrich just kind of hides and angsts for eight years, and he takes an assumed name being a swordsman for this small mountain village, but eventually he gets a lead to 
what his old friend is up to, and, you know, I guess out of a desire for closure, he starts kind of wanting to go see what that's all about, go see, hey, why did my friend do that, by the way? Of course, he's going to be distracted, because he's going to be meeting all the other characters along with Tressa, but the characters are pretty good sports about having their personal plots halted for whatever Tressa decides to do next. He has the token tournament arc chapter, that's what Olberg does in his chapter two, and it was a little less painful than I expected. Olberg's one of the ones who can challenge villagers to duels, and I thought he would be doing that the whole time in the tournament, but no, he, he was able to bring the whole party with him, so that was a relief. Not really sure what Olbrich is going to do. I know that he's going to encounter his old friend sooner rather than later. So I'm not really sure where his chapter four will go. His old friend, the traitor, is said to have kind of, I want to say sympathetic motives, even though his actions were inexcusable. So I'm really interested to learn why he thought that would be a good idea and why the game expects me to care about him. That's kind of a thing with people and their tragic backstories is like, I consider myself fairly empathetic, but when it gets to a character, it's just like, well, okay, but you, you still didn't do this. Like, tragic backstories are very tricky for me to buy, so I'm really interested to see what they're going to try to do here. The third character, Primrose the Dancer, who's dancing so she can find the thugs that killed her dad and kill them all, and she will do whatever it takes to get that revenge. She will degrade herself, she will live as, you know, a dancer and dance for creepy men the whole time. She'll do whatever it takes for revenge. And that just kind of sat with me the wrong way. It's just like, after a certain point, it's not really worth the cost, but it just won't bring her dad back. It won't undo all the shame she's had to put up with. They kind of talk about it in her second chapter as she's approaching the first of the three men that she wants to kill. They talk about how her family motto was to always have faith in themselves or something like that and that has kind of guided Primrose throughout her life. But she does seem to be a little bit aware of the fact that she's not really living for much besides getting revenge. So I'm really interested to see what she'll do once she has her revenge, or if she'll realize that it won't really do anything and she needs to find something better to live for. It's a question that I thought of during her first chapter, and I'm glad that they're slowly broaching it during her second chapter. She's probably got one of the darker storylines in the whole game, given everything I've just been describing. Definitely not as uplifting as Tressa's storyline of wonder and adventure. Despite that, Primrose and Tressa get along pretty well. All the characters seem to get along really well, and that's nice. There's not a whole lot of interaction between them as is, but what little we get is generally pretty good, pretty supportive group of people. Alfin, the apothecary, I've kind of talked about his storyline so far with a couple friends of mine who are also playing the game, and the thing with him is that he's an apothecary, 
and that means he's making medicine for the sick medieval peasants, and there's usually someone who's like so sick that they require an extra special ingredient, and that's at the end of a dungeon, and there'll be a boss waiting for him. So if Alfin doesn't beat the boss and come home from the dungeon, someone's gonna die, oh no. And that is sad, but the problem with that that I was talking about with my friends is how for both of his first chapters, they play the dying little girl card. In chapter one, he has this best friend who has a little sister. She gets bit by a horrible snake, and she's gonna die if Alfin doesn't go get, you know, a little bit of the venom from the snake to make a vaccine or something like that. And then in chapter two, he comes to this town where there is another apothecary who's selling medicine for way expensive prices, but this one mom is too poor to afford it, so one of her little girls is gonna die. So Alfin's like, hey, I got you covered. Secretly, I'm not a big fan of the dying little girl pulling at my heartstrings. It's just kind of a narrative trope I'm a little tired of. And the fact that Alfin does it twice in a row with both of his chapters so far, it's just, come on, we're already going back to that well? Now, in all fairness, there are different circumstances behind the different chapters, and it's really just the short-term stake that's the same. The long-term stakes are a little different in each case, but I just couldn't help but draw the comparison to Alfin's first chapter. Otherwise, Alfin is a pretty upbeat guy, really friendly, I like him. He's voiced by Greg Chun, who has a good voice. Everyone has a good voice, I should say. I should just get that out of the way now. I didn't talk about it during Tressa or Primrose's little bits, but... Yeah, everyone has really good voice acting. Alfin is a very versatile character, possibly even more versatile, or at least as much as Tressa, because he's got reliable damage, he's got really good healing and status taking care of. Yes, I went to college, so I'm good with words, why do you ask? But yeah, Alfin is a really good character. And he's got a really wholesome motivation. He just wants to travel the world and help the sick. And he doesn't even charge people for his business. He'll just heal them for free because, hey, he's healing them. Life. Health. Being alive and not dead. Therion, whose story probably has the most suffrage from the way they've decided to format the game, but I've already talked about that. I mentioned that his first chapter involves breaking into a noble's house to steal some kind of rare valuable because no one's ever been able to steal from that house. So the thief who does it is going to be a pretty big deal. So Therion and his pride decide that he's going to be the one to do it. But he doesn't want any partners because he's angsting about his old partner from childhood who I don't really know what they're going to do with that. I'm getting the sense that he was betrayed by his partner because, you know, his partner is suspiciously missing and Therion seems to be upset whenever someone talks about partners, so there's not a lot of room to the imagination. He was probably betrayed by his partner and we're going to have to beat him up later. And despite all of this hesitation to have partners, he even turns down a couple of other thieves in that chapter because he doesn't want to be partners with them. But he'll let Tressa, Ulbrich, and everyone else come along with him instead. That's kind of weird. 
Anyway, we get into the mansion, we try to steal the gem, but then the butler comes out, and he's the boss, and he slaps Therion's wrist with some kind of bracelet that marks him as a failed thief, and he can't take it off unless the butler takes it off himself, which he won't do unless Therion manages to steal other gems from other people and bring them back to this mansion. And Therion is like, well, I gotta get this bracelet off, so I guess I gotta do it. I can't have people thinking I'm a bad thief. So his pride is really his downfall here. He has to go get these other gems, and the lady of the house is actually really friendly toward Therion, but he won't have any of that. He doesn't like people being nice to him, and the butler's like, yeah, yeah, don't don't worry about Therion, the lady. He's, he's Therion. He knows what's up. I know what's up. Let's just let things play out. They seem to really like hinting that the butler has some kind of exotic past. I'm not really sure what that's all about. A small part of me wonders if maybe he's Therion's long-abandoned parent or something, because Therion never had parents. I don't know. It'd be kind of a crazy twist, but one that I've seen done before. It's kind of interesting... For me, personally, it's not really a big deal, is that Therion is voiced by Christopher Neosi, who is known online sometimes as Kerbofer, and the lady of the house, Cordelia, is voiced by Kira Buckland, who some people might know from Nier Automata or some of the Danganronpa games, but the two of them actually used to work together on this really weird video on Newgrounds and YouTube called Brawl Taunts, and that was how I first heard of both of them. So to hear both of them voice acting in a professional and really good video game is just kind of funny. It's like, wow, a lot's happened in 10 years. Therion is really a good character for debuffing the bosses, making them weaker and not as liable to ruin my day. I always feel more comfortable debuffing the enemies than buffing my party. I'm not really sure why that is, but Therion is a really useful character for that, and I gave Tressa the Thief subclass, so now it's like I have a second Therion whenever I don't feel like having the actual Therion with me for one reason or another. Therion's overworld ability to lockpick chests is a little annoying because you have the token one purple chest per dungeon, that he has to unlock, so you have to come back with him if you don't have him in your party. And it's really just kind of like, oh yeah, we forgot, we gave Therion this ability. Let's make sure he still has a use. Let's make sure he's not just gathering dust in the corner over there. Items aren't usually super special, so it really feels like they just kind of ran out of uses for Therion's lockpicking ability. Punnet, the Huntress. Everyone in her village, or at least her and her master, but I'm pretty sure it's her whole village, they all speak in very archaic English. You know, I mentioned the these and the thous. They speaketh in a weird way. Kind of to emphasize how detached they are from the rest of the world since they live in the heart of a dark forest, and I kind of like it. I feel like I like it for the wrong reasons. I just think it's funny to listen to her talking like this while no one around her is doing the same thing. It kind of reminds me of Frog in Chrono Trigger, but tenfold. She's one of the characters who I 
kind of have the least strong impression of. I usually only use her because I feel like I need to. It's not because I particularly like her that much. I do, but she's probably lower on the totem pole for me by process of elimination. She has good abilities in battle, and I expect her to get even more once I give her the warrior subclass. I was also a cheapskate, and just save-scummed, having Therion swipe a rare axe with only a 3% chance of success until I finally got it and I equipped it on Hanit, so now whenever she swings her axe, I expect her to be doing lots of damage, so she's one of my heavy hitters right now. Her storyline involves finding her erstwhile hunting master, because he left a few months ago to fight a vicious beast called the Red Eye, and he hasn't come back yet, and she's like, okay... Whereeth is he? And so she eventually sets out to find him. She does find him at the end of her second chapter, and he has turned to stone. Red Eye somehow has the ability to do that to people, I guess. I was thinking that maybe Red Eye turns other people into Red Eye itself, and you would have to put down Red Eye and, real and realize, Oh no, Master had turned into Red Eye. I had to kill my Master. Oh shucks. But nope. You just run into his statuey corpse, and now you gotta fix him and maybe stop Red Eye if it pleases us. Not sure where her story's gonna go now. I was kind of one of the predictions that I was the most strongly attached to, but that doesn't seem to be happening now. Ophelia is usually the first character listed when people go through all the characters in name, acronym, order. So I feel like she's kind of meant to be the default protagonist if you don't pick a favorite in mind. I'm not really sure, though. She does kind of have a JRPG-ish backstory. Like, her and Ulbrich both kind of feel the most traditional in terms of storyline. She's going on a pilgrimage to relight sacred flames in different churches around the world, or the continent... And she's doing it because her sister was going to do it, but her adoptive dad is dying instead. So she's letting her adoptive sister stay with the dad, and she's going to go in her stead. Go see the world and light the flames, and Ophelia's really just a pleasant character. She's just really friendly and all that kind of stuff. She's, you know, the white mage of the group, so it comes with all the stereotypes of the white mage. They're all kind of played true. Ophelia's not afraid to throw down when it counts, so there's that. She and Alfin both are really good healers. I usually like to keep either one of them in the party. Not both, but at least one of them. I recently turned her into a scholar, so she's using a lot of spells that are really powerful in addition to just healing, because... Before that, all she could really do was heal and use light elemental. Now she's a little more versatile. She's the only character who I know where their Chapter 4 takes place. I actually went to her Chapter 4 town way early on, and oh boy, that place is weird. I'm not really sure what's going on there. All the villagers are just standing around like lumps, and they won't even interact with you at all. There are some villagers that the game doesn't let you interact with, and some that they do, and the ones that you are allowed to interact with, they don't say anything at all, and you can't interact with them other than failing to talk to them, so that just kind of emphasizes how 
weird they are. I'm really interested to see where they go with that. The thing I've noticed with a lot of the characters is a theme of betrayal. A lot of people seem to be messed up by a person that they thought they could count on. If not in their backstory, then over the course of their plotline. So I'm really wondering who's going to betray Ophelia. I, I have a bad feeling her dad, her adoptive dad, is like secretly some messed up dude. But I can't really say that for sure. She's one of the plot lines I'm most interested to see reach the conclusion. And probably will be one of the first ones I end up finishing. I should also say, Christina V is doing an amazing job voicing her. She's also voicing Five Volt from WarioWare, who is another cute character, much like Ophelia. So I didn't realize Christina V could do a lot of cute voices, so that just kind of shows that I need to pay a little more attention to her performances. Does a good job. They all do a good job, like I keep saying. Cyrus is probably the character I was the most wrong about before I encountered him. He was the final character I was introduced to, and based on his looks, his ability being to scrutinize, and what I heard of his weird lack of a love life, I expected him to be kind of a snob and a jerk, but no, he's actually just a huge total dork who doesn't realize when people are flirting with him. He's off in his own detective fantasy. He fancies himself some kind of sleuth. It's like, he even literally says the game is afoot at one point when he wants to solve a mystery. He's a scholar for a fancy school. He even teaches a princess. And he's really well regarded as being really smart and stuff, but he's a little bad at interacting with people. He thinks everyone just comes to him because they want to learn about stuff. His storyline goes from 0 to 60 really fast. It escalates, I'm just gonna say that. It starts off with him finding a library book has been taken from the library. He's like, oops, I better go get that back. And then when he does, he realizes that an ancient necromancy book was taken from the library, and it was gone long, long ago. So he's like, okay, I just gotta go find that. So he goes to the town where he's supposed to get a lead on that, and his old associate who's gonna help him is like, yeah, okay, I'll figure it out. Can you look into the missing townspeople for me? So he does, and it turns out there is a guy in the sewers kidnapping people from the town and draining their blood from some kind of creepy blood sacrifice. And it's just like, oh, okay, we've gone from a library thief to this. Cyrus, what is going on? Otherwise, Cyrus is one of my most useful characters. He has elemental abilities that target every enemy, which I was sorely lacking up until I met him. And he even can unlock versions of the spells that hit twice. The downfall of that being that he really guzzles his mana when he does that. He runs out of MP, his SP, whatever the game decides to call it. He also has a field ability that reduces the encounter rate, which is a bit of a double-edged sword. I like it because it means I can explore without stopping to get into a fight every 12 steps. And the downfall of that is that it makes grinding a little longer if I feel like I'm a little too underleveled for the area. It means I have to actually cause a fight to happen first. I think some of those problems are going to go away when I reclass him 
into a merchant because that has a skill that allows him to save up on his SP so he won't be wasting too much with all his spells. One of the few reclasses I have set in stone. So those are all the characters. I didn't really dip into my future predictions that much. I didn't really have that much to say. I had a few, and that was just kind of me justifying saying what I had. One thing that becomes available as you start exploring the world are the sub-jobs. I talked about them a little bit, but just in case, here's me going into a lot more detail about them. As you start exploring the world, you find little caves that have these altars, and they'll give sub-jobs to the characters. They're based on the eight characters, and once you equip them, you now have their battle commands. I recently made Ophelia a scholar, so now, in addition to her cleric abilities, which she'll always keep, she can now use the spells that Cyrus is able to use, even though she'll have to unlock them at her own rate. It works like that for everyone. Everyone can have their own skills, and then the skills of whatever subclass they have equipped. This adds a whole new layer to party setup and which characters you like to have with you, and it also includes their passive skills, which they unlock at certain points. It's just one of those systems where there are generally no wrong answers for how you want to go about it. That's not entirely true, I guess. There are a few dud options, but I feel like you could probably still make it work if everyone else is really well suited. All the jobs on their own are pretty good, so it's really good that they're able to showcase that by showing how the different jobs supplement each other within the same character. Also, you can only have one sub-job per character, and only one character at a time can have that specific job equipped, so that is something to keep in mind. I'm usually not an explorative player, so I had to specifically seek these shrines out once I figured it was a good time to start looking for them. They have their own symbol on the in-game radar, so once you recognize it, you can usually find the shrine without too much trouble. But to help out the other players who get a little lost like I do, I'll just say that the shrine for each job is normally found somewhere in the region of the world with its associated character. So the merchant shrine is somewhere in the coastlands, and Tressa is the merchant. She's from the coastlands, so you make the connection. It's like that for all eight. Talking about Yasunori Nishiki's music again, I like how each of the characters' chapter boss encounters have a little musical sting that are unique to the character. They'll have a verbal confrontation with the boss, and it usually relates to the character's motivation. Each track title references everyone's personal driving force. Primrose's is called For Revenge. Cyrus's is called For Truth. Hanit's is called For Master. You can kind of see where they're going with the naming scheme. And all of them really neatly transition into the boss theme for the chapter. Boss themes so far are either this song called Decisive Battle or Decisive Battle 2. And the latter one always gives me chills whenever I hear it. It's kind of like a gamble for me. I'm like, okay, which one are they going to play? Which one will it be? Yes! Not to say that the first version of the song is bad by any means. I just prefer the second one. It's a lot more exciting for me. But that's all I really have to say about the game so far. I had a little bit of trouble in the difficulty bump from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and I'm expecting the same thing to happen again now that I'm going to be going into chapter 3. 
I especially know that Therion and Alfin's third chapter bosses are going to just make me cry a little on the inside, so I'm going to have to get buff before I take them on. But I look forward to seeing how things go. If you like this episode of the BitCast, you want to see what I think when I eventually get to the end of Octopath, or just what I have to say about other games, then keep in mind that you can subscribe to the BitCast on the Podcast One website or the Podcast One app. You can find the episodes on iTunes, and you'll be able to keep up with what I think of different games. With that, I will see you on the next one. Listen to BitCast anytime on podcast1.com and on the Podcast One app.